I want you to take your Bibles and look with me to Mark chapter 8. We're going to look at a very interesting passage of Scripture that speaks the words that Jesus spoke. These are some tough words. They are some challenging words, but words that I hope will be of encouragement to you. In Mark chapter 8, verse 34, the King James Version reads this way. Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Friends, what do you suppose Jesus is trying to teach us through this simple statement? I think what he's saying is that if you really want to find yourself, your purpose, your significance, your reason for existence, then the way to do that is to lose yourself <clears throat> for his sake. Notice the question that Jesus asked toward the end of his statement. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What is the greatest value? Everything that this world has to offer or your soul? Notice again how the New Living Translation uh, translates these words. Verse 36, and how... Do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul in the process? Is, is, it, is anything worth more than your soul? Friends, I hope you understand that it's possible for you to gain the whole world, at least theoretically, in possessions and position and power, uh, or a portion of that, and yet lose your own soul. And according to what Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture, that would be the absolutely worst deal or exchange that you could ever make in life. But Jesus also has made another offer, and he spoke of another exchange that is the absolutely best one that you could ever get. He said, lose your life for my sake, and you'll find real life. Well, how do you do that? It's clear in Scripture as you study it that you do that by seeking to know Jesus Christ personally not just with your head, not just a bunch of facts, but with your heart, taking him in to be the Lord of your life. When you pursue him, that is when you find life. Well, how am I supposed to do that? Let's be serious about this. Let's bring this down. How do I seek after the Lord? Again, Jesus gives us a three-part strategy here. And the very first thing that he says is that you must make a conscious decision to deny yourself, to deny yourself. Listen, that goes against everything that the world is teaching us nowadays. The world wants you to be a me-first person, um, to think and care only about yourself. And you know, it, it is one thing to deny yourself certain things. It is quite something else to deny your actual self. The self in each of us is strong, and it wants to be in control. It will run to the front of the line to exalt itself. But the key to following Jesus is simple, and that is not to follow self. 
Um, at the beginning of every day, what we need to do is put self on the shelf and then go live for another. Be intentional and live your life for the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes on to talk about how we must begin our day by taking up our cross. That's what Jesus did. He literally uh, set an example for us, and we need to follow that example. We need to do what he did. We need to shoulder our cross, but we need to understand that the cross that we bear is a very different kind of cross than what Jesus was carrying. The Bible's clear. Jesus died first to his own self-will, and then he died on the cross. God wants us to follow in his son's steps, and he wants us to die to our self-wills. And again, the cross that we're called to bear is quite different, but the Lord again wants us to deny ourselves and then shoulder our cross and follow after him. Matthew 20, verse 28 says, For even I, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve others and to give my life as a ransom for many. What are you here for? Why do you exist? How have you been called to serve the Lord? Those are some very important questions that you need to answer. You'll never find true happiness and peace and rest in your heart until you know that. Jesus says you have to deny yourself. In order to get on that path, you have to take up your own cross. But a third thing that he mentions is that we must make a choice to follow him. To follow Jesus again is to seek to know him personally. To develop that intimate personal relationship with the Lord. Something that every person needs but not every person has. I think that one of the best ways, and I've been encouraging several people here in the last couple of weeks to just open up your Bible and read about the Lord. If you want that intimate relationship with Him, open up and read His story. And while you're at it, take some time and pray and talk to the Lord and, and ask Him to guide you through life and let Him live His life vicariously through your life. When you do that, when all of that becomes a part of you and, and your lifestyle, then that is when God begins to reveal your calling. In other words, what God wants you to do with your life. And that's when all that the big puzzle pieces of life begin to come together and you see life the way that God wants you to see it. I, I don't know about you, but I, I'm not a puzzle person. Uh, we don't have in our closet a bunch of boxes of puzzles that we set around and put together. Uh, I didn't grow up doing that. My family didn't do that. We may have put one or two together through the years that I was there with my parents, but uh, not many. We were the kind of people that wanted to be outside. We, we liked being in the woods hunting or on the water fishing or on the ball field playing ball. We were doing something most of us couldn't sit still long enough to put a puzzle together. You know, we were busy people. I was thinking about puzzles the other day, and I, I thought, you know, the last puzzle I put together was uh, several years ago. I went to visit Miss Hannah. That was uh, Sharon Lassiter's mother. How many of you remember Miss Hannah? Anybody? Yeah. I, I remember going to visit her and uh, walked in the room, and she's got this little table next to her bed. She's in a chair, and she's putting this puzzle together. She's got um, a lot of the loose pieces in the bottom of the puzzle box uh, sitting on the bed next to her, 
and uh, she's got a little table. She couldn't put all the pieces on the table, but she's trying to assemble it, and uh, she, she wanted to talk. That was Miss Hannah. And I thought, well, the best way for me to do that is just sit down. And so I did, and we began to put the puzzle together, and we did that for about an hour. I was busy working on the puzzle, but I was listening because Miss Hannah likes to talk, and she, she really enjoyed that. We had a good time. Uh, we had the, the, the top of the box, the, the picture part of the box, leaning over next to the bed so that we could see what the puzzle was supposed to look like when we were finished. I thought, what in the world would you do if somebody handed you a thousand-piece puzzle in a Ziploc bag with no box top picture to go by to be able to put it together? What would you do? And I thought to myself, you know, my soul, I, I'd probably hand it back <laughs> and say, you go put it together. I'm being honest. I'd either probably put it down. I wouldn't even attempt it. I mean, where in the world would you begin? How do you put a puzzle together when you have no picture to go by? I guess if you've got enough time and you've got enough patience, you can eventually get it together, but it might take a lifetime to do that. And, uh, well, you know, thinking about that, that's the way life can be. Life has a lot of pieces to the puzzle. Sometimes too many pieces, and sometimes all the pieces look, to, look, look alike. They look the same. If you try to put all those pieces together, honestly, you'll only be frustrated and overwhelmed to no end. And listen, if, if you're really serious about putting all the pieces of your life together, then you need to belong to God. You need to belong to God. He needs to become the owner of your life and your soul. If anyone knows what you're supposed to look like at the end of your life, it is the Lord. He created you. He knows you inside out. He knows you better than anybody. He's the one who holds the finished image of your calling. You and I both know that putting a puzzle together without seeing the image of the final product is nearly impossible that's why we need to be looking to the Lord because He knows where He's wanting to take you. He knows how He's wanting to shape you. It's important that you look to the Lord. <clears throat> Tony Evans said so many Christians are living their lives with, with a feeling of insignificance because they cannot see how they relate to the much larger comprehensive puzzle called God's purpose. He says you may be a fancy piece or a pretty piece or a handsome piece. You may even be a well-crafted piece, but until you connect to the greater meaning for which you were created, you're just a piece without a puzzle. Just a piece without a puzzle. A lot of pieces floating around that aren't connected to the puzzle. Tony also suggested that the finished picture of God has, that God has created us to all form is, is two complementing images. Two pictures hanging on the wall, so to speak. One image is that of maximizing the glory of God. Other, the other image is the expansion of God's kingdom. Those two go together. And he talks about how we're supposed to co complete the image 
through the good deeds that we perform or do as Christians. In other words, we're each supposed to serve Christ, giving Him the glory that He deserves, and also growing His kingdom one precious soul at a time. We're going to be camping out in Ephesians chapter 4, so whether you have a, a, a hard copy of the Bible or a tablet or a phone, turn to Ephesians chapter 4 with me. But first, I, 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 wanna, I want you to see how Paul sets the stage for chapter 4 with what he says at the end of chapter 3. We're going to be looking at a couple verses at that uh, at the end of chapter 3, but I also want to say to you that you don't have to look very far to find Christians who have a distorted view of who they are in Christ. I mean, when you look into a mirror, what do you see? What did you see this week or this morning when, when you looked into the mirror? Don't tell me. You might scare me. No, I'm kidding. Um, <laughs> what, what do we look like? What are we supposed to look like? You know, most of us see people who we don't believe that God can use in any way of significance. We we, we don't think God can do anything amazing through us. But, but friends, I want to remind you of the promise that Jesus made. Look at John 14 real quick with me, verse 12. This is what Jesus said to you. He said, the truth is, anyone who believes in me will do the same works. In other words, you're going to be doing the kind of work that I did. But he goes on to say, he says, and even greater works. You're going to do the same work that I've done and even greater work because I am going to be with the Father. That, that's a promise. That, that's not just a promise to me, your pastor. That's a promise to you as an individual, as a Christian. That being said, let's look at the last part of Ephesians 3. Look at verse 20. Notice what Paul writes. He said, Now all glory be to God, who is able, through His mighty power at work in us, to accomplish infinitely more than we might ask or think. Glory to Him in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Friends, Paul reminds us here that we serve a Savior, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly more than we could ever ask or even imagine or think of. Why is he able to do that? It's because of his limitless power. He is all-powerful. There is nothing he cannot do. And the beautiful truth is, is that God desires to display his power through his followers just like you and me. You may be looking into a mirror and seeing someone that you think is too young or maybe too old. But my friends, you must never doubt what God can do through you, through us, if we will set our hearts to follow Him. God has a plan. He has a plan for you in His kingdom work that He wants you to be a part of. Now, I want you to make note of how Paul begins chapter 4. He uses the word therefore. That means he's referring or he's kind of tying it to what he said in the previous verses. In other words, he's saying, in light of the gracious riches that we have in Christ and the glorious reality that we share by being a part of the spiritual community, which he calls the church, we also, because we're a part of that community, we have some responsibilities. Being a part of that means we have some things we need to be doing. Now, pick up with me. Chapter 4, verse 1. 
Paul writes, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Did you, did you see that? You've been called by God. There's a calling on your life. A calling to do what? He said, well, verse 2, a calling to be humble. A calling to be gentle. A calling to be patient with each other. Making allowances for each other's faults because of your love. We are called to live this way to keep the unity that God has already created in the church. Everything that God wants to do through us is about creating unity. It's to unite us. Now, unity is not sameness. Look around. Do you see anybody that looks like you? No. We, we are not the same. Unity is not sameness. But friends, it is oneness. It is definitely oneness. God has called us to come together as one body, the body of Christ. But he allows each of us as believers to maintain our God-created uniqueness while at the same time he calls us to share a common vision, a common goal, a common purpose. Look at verse six or verse 3. He says, always keep yourself united in the Holy Spirit. And bind yourself together with peace. Peace. God's holy duct tape. It's to bind us together and keep us together. Verse 4, he said, we are all one body. We have the same spirit. We have all been called to the same glorious future. There is only one Lord, one faith, one baptism and there is only one God and Father who is over us all and in us all and living through us all. I know many of you like to watch sports. I, I do. I don't watch as much as I used to. But one of the things about sports teams is that they have a, a lot of players, different numbers, depending on what sport it is. But those players are all on that team because they have a different role to fulfill. But it is also the responsibility of each team member, each player, to work together as a team for the same common purpose or the same goal. The church is no different. We're here to work together to accomplish the one thing that God has called us to do. So I want us to look at how God has gifted the church for us to be able to carry out this purpose, the purpose that God has called us, His purpose. In verse 7, he talks about how God has given every one of us as a believer a spiritual gift to be able to enable us to do His work. He says, He has given each one of us a special gift according to the generosity of Christ. As a believer, you are guaranteed that you are given and possess at least one spiritual gift. Some have more. Uh, the longer you're a Christian, the more gifts you should have. But you do have at least one. You possess at least one spiritual gift, but it doesn't belong to you. It's not yours. It belongs to the rest of the body of Christ. It belongs, if you have a gift, it belongs to the rest of us. It belongs to God. It is also your job to put that gift into service, ministering to the other members of the church. So, so in order for us to have that same purpose, God has given us gifts to be able to accomplish it. Look at verse 11 and 12. God has also given us several different kinds of spiritual leaders 
to the church to equip each member for the different ministry needs of the church. In verse 11 he says that he, meaning Jesus, is the one who gave these gifts to the church. He gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastor teachers. No article in the Greek there. Verse 12 he says their responsibility is to equip God's people, that's you, to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. Again, Tony Evans writes about this. He said some people attend church only for their own benefit. He said, but that's not what being a church member looks like. That's called being a leech. God saved and equipped you for the work of ministry. He saved you for the work of service. Why? Because he wants to build up the body of Christ. So serving Christ, uh, you do that by serving each other. That's the best way to bring glory to God and grow the kingdom of God. And the best way to serve him is through teamwork, through teamwork. Now, Ronnie mentioned our birthday. Next week, we will officially be 20 years old. Where has the time gone? When you're busy and you're having fun, time flies. Uh, 20 years ago, we built into the spiritual DNA of our church the concept of teamwork. We chose to structure ourselves around teams because it is the biblical way of doing the work of God. The Bible's full of examples of teams and teamwork. Didn't call it teams, but they're groups of people working together. That concept most certainly began as Jesus started calling a team of disciples who later became apostles who were the seed team of what is known today as the church. If anyone understands teamwork, it's the Lord. Jesus was a team leader of those early disciples. He led them for three plus years. He was also a team player working with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He knows teams and uh, he's interested in us being a part of teams. We, we have believed so much in teamwork that it became one of our core values. And in our bylaws it says, We believe that every believer has been endowed with spiritual gifts from the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. These gifts are to be used to minister to others. And the best way to serve Christ and others is by working together as a team. And we do that on the different ministry teams that we have, doing what we have been gifted to do. One of, the, one of the best examples that I think I've ever seen in the years that I've been in ministry of, of teamwork on a large scale is what we've seen done through Builders for Christ. Now, when I say Builders for Christ, how many of you know what that is? How many of you don't know what that is? Some of you don't. Some of you are being honest. Thank you, Charlie. Not everybody knows what Builders for Christ has done for us. Um, Lawrence Corley and his team of leaders, most of which come from around uh, Birmingham, Alabama, they have been organizing volunteers from churches all over America for the last probably 30, 40 years, 40 years, to be able to mobilize them and then use them to build facilities like you're sitting in right now. Most people don't realize that this was a volunteer-friendly building by Builders for Christ uh, several years ago. They came, and this worship center was uh, completed, built to about 80% completion. 
by about 1,500 volunteers uh, that came from 26 different states. Uh, they came for 13 consecutive weeks, teaming up, doing whatever needed to be done to be able to make this facility a reality for us. And when, when they finished, that is when we teamed up as a church and we finished the rest that had to be done. And, and it was a process. Amen? It was a process. But um, the people who volunteer, for the most part, are not professional people. They're not professional builders. They are um, homemakers, many of them. They, they work in some other field besides construction. And, and honestly, a lot of them are retired people, which shows you're never too old to serve the Lord. Amen? <laughs> never too old. Um, one of the ingenious strategies that Mr. Corley uses to make this team concept work is that he, he understands the giftedness that each church brings. And uh, he's been masterful at assigning what week the churches will come. And he knows what they can do. So he knows what needs to be done each week. And so he gathers those churches every year the same time they do the same job. They do what they did last year. They do it the next year and the next year and the next year. So they always are doing the same job. You don't have to learn everything about how to build this building. None of us know that. But once you know how to build a wall, you can go build a wall anywhere. Once you know how to hang sheetrock, you can hang sheetrock pretty much anywhere in the building. Once you know how to put on hurricane straps, you can put them on pretty much any building. Again, you don't have to learn how to build everything in the building. In order to be a part of Builders for Christ, you can just learn a specific task and then do your job with your team. And as a team of volunteers, we get the work done that needs to be done in order to accomplish a, great, a greater task that, that's even greater than ourselves. Uh, nobody driving by would ever guess that this was a volunteer-friendly built building built by a team of Christians who volunteered to do something together that is much, much bigger than they would ever be able to do by themselves. Now, Mr. Corley is, is a smart man. But he didn't invent this strategy. He borrowed it from the Lord. And uh, that's how Jesus wants us to work together as a team to build and grow up the church that he's called us to be a part of. If, if God can use a team of volunteers to build a beautiful facility like this, then God also has a plan, and he calls us to work together to continue to grow the kingdom of God and give him the glory that he deserves. And it's all done through teamwork. And uh, he wants you to be a part of that teamwork. It's just that simple. He wants you to be a part of what he's doing, working on his team. I want you to focus with me on Ephesians 4, verse 15 and verse 16. Because I've saved the best for last. This really tells us how God does that. He says, Paul writes, We, we will hold to the truth in love, becoming more and more in every way like Christ who is the head of his body, the church. Verse 16 says, Under his direction, the whole body is fitted together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, 
it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. Notice, first of all, that the Lord makes us fit together perfectly as his team. He says he makes the whole body fit together perfectly. He knows how to put the puzzle together. God alone sees the big picture. He knows the master plan of how he is, he, he, you know, the master plan that he's made to accomplish his great work of reconciling the lost back to himself. Paul again writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18, All this newness of life is from God who brought us back to himself through what Christ did. And God has given us, me and you, the church, the task of reconciling people to himself. For God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, no longer counting people's sin against them. This is the wonderful message that he's given us, the church, to tell others. I, I have been saying for years that, that God custom builds churches. Why have I said that? Well, simply because God knows the particular work that he wants a certain church to do in their particular community. And he also knows the gifts and the people that each church is going to need to be able to accomplish that task, that work, that purpose. And so there's kind of a rule that I've watched God live by over the last number of years that I've been walking with the Lord, and the rule is something like this. He will never ask you to do something, anything, whether you're an individual or a church, He'll never ask you to do anything that He doesn't first provide all the resources that are needed for success. That's just the way God works. God knows your ability far better than you do. He knows what you can do. He knows what you can't do. He created you. He gave you your potential. He's giving you, given you your giftedness. He knows your ability. He just needs you to be available. It's just that simple. God, God's already, he already knows. He has a plan. He knows how to employ your giftedness. He's brought all of us together here under one roof. Now he wants us to fit together in love and purpose to be his team for the hour in which we live. God has a masterful way of bringing a team together. Notice also that God has given each of us a special work to do. He says that. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. Again, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 6 says, There are different ways that God works in our lives, but it is the same God who does the work through all of us, a spiritual gift, is given to each of us as a means for helping the entire church. For every need in the church, for every need that we have, God has already provided a way to meet that need. Harvest, I believe, has all the giftedness and the personnel that we need to be able to do the work that God's called us to do. We just need to be able to team up to make that become a reality. There is a ministry task of some kind that God wants everybody that's a member of this church to do. A task, something that you can do. God has gifted all of us to serve. And he wants us to be a servant and not a leech. Amen? Amen. First Peter 4.10 God has given gifts to each one of you from his great variety of spiritual gifts. He says, manage them well. 
employ them, deploy them, use them. What's that old saying? Use it or lose it? I've heard that so many times through my life as a Christian. Manage them well so that God's generosity can flow through you. Are you called to be a speaker? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Are you called to help others? Do it with all the strength and energy that God supplies. Then, notice this, God will be given glory in everything through Jesus Christ. All glory and power belong to him forever and ever. Amen. Now let me show you why this is so important. You see, there's a third aspect here. As we do our special work of ministry, Paul says the other members in the church can grow up in Christ. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. As each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow. Again, from observation, I've seen that the church, and by the church I'm talking about you as a congregation, you will grow spiritually in direct proportion to the level of service of our membership. Think about this. The fewer people we have serving on teams, the less we're going to grow. But on the opposite side of that, the more people we have serving through team ministry, the greater growth we're going to experience as a church. The more we're going to grow spiritually and the more we're going to grow numerically. The body of Christ is built up when the various parts of the body contribute to the whole. I've been to California a few times. Not picking on California, but it's on the other side of the world. No. California has some of the oldest and largest organisms in the world. And I'm not talking about politicians here. Okay. I'm talking about redwood trees. Redwood trees. There are several redwood groves or forests up and down the West Coast. Officially, I've been told or I've read that the oldest one is about 2,200 years old. There are some that think there may be some a little bit older than that. They're huge trees. They grow to about 300 feet. When all you've seen is pine trees and you see a, a redwood, you go, wow, man, this is a little bitty thing compared to one of them. 300 feet. And yet, their root system only goes down about 6 to 12 feet. How can a tree grow to 300 feet when it only has a root system that goes down about 12 feet? How does that happen? Well, the honest truth is this. Those trees don't grow to be the tallest trees by being by themselves. They're not alone. They're not alone. You see, redwoods create their strength to withstand the powerful winds and the floods and all that they have to deal with by extending their roots out some 50 feet from the trunk of the tree. They have a very broad root base. That's part of the secret. But the other part of the secret is they live in these groves or forests of redwoods so that their roots can intertwine with each other. Their roots all get tangled up together. They thrive by living together. They, they reach their greatest growth potential by living together and helping each other out. In other words, you can't mess with any one tree without messing with others. That's just the way they live together. 
So when the fierce winds blow, it is their connectedness with each other that allows them to borrow strength from the others and also grow stronger themselves. Friends, that is exactly the strategy that God desires for us to use to build the church together. That's what family's all about. That's what relationships are all about. That, that's what connectedness is all about. That's what friendships are all about. That's what teamwork will do. Coming together, working together, serving together, doing the work of God as a part of a fellowship. Paul writes, he makes the whole body fit together perfectly as each part does its own special work. It helps the other parts to grow. You employ your gift, deploy it, put it to work. You're going to help somebody else grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. John Maxwell says, as, we, as with all living organisms, Spiritual growth in the church does not come from forces outside, but from the vital power within that causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself. Teamwork. Teamwork is what God uses to help grow the body of Christ and to bring himself the glory that he deserves. And here's the key. If, if there's one key to teamwork that makes it work, it's this. It's love. It's love. Love for each other. Ministering love in all fashion and form to everyone that we have that opportunity. Jesus said it this way, and this is so important. He said, so now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. Love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. For your love, he said, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples.